Welcome to PQ Doc on Call, a podcast dedicated to current and aspiring intensivists. I'm Pradeep Kamath. I'm Rahul Demania, a current third-year pediatric critical care fellow. And I'm Kate Phelps, a second-year pediatric critical care medicine fellow. And we come to you from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Emory University School of Medicine. We are delighted to be joined by guest expert, Dr. Stephanie Jernigan, Assistant Professor of Pediatric Nephrology, Medical Director of the Pediatric Dialysis Program at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. She is the Chief of Medicine and Campus Medical Director at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Eggleston Campus. Her research interests include chronic kidney disease and dialysis. She's on Twitter at Stephanie J-E-R-N-1-3. I will now turn it over to Rahul to start with our patient case. A three-year-old, previously healthy male, presents with periorbital edema. The patient was initially seen by a pediatrician who prescribed antihistamines for allergy. After no improvement in the eye swelling after a two-week antihistamine course, the patient was given a short course of steroids, which also did not improve his periorbital edema. The patient progressed to having abdominal distension and was prescribed Miralax for constipation. Grandparents subsequently noticed worsening edema in his face, eyes, and feet. The patient subsequently had low urine output, low appetite, and lack of energy. And as a result, the patient was brought to the emergency department and labs were obtained. Grandparents denied any illnesses prior to presentation, no fever, congestion, sore throat, cough, nausea, vomiting, gross hematuria, or diarrhea. In the emergency department, the patient was noted to be hypertensive, tachycardic, and breathing 20 to 30 times per minute on room air with the pulse oximetry of 92%. Admission weight, which was recorded, was 16.5 kilograms. Physical exam showed periorbital edema, edema of ankles, there was mild abdominal distension without any tenderness or hepatosplenomegaly. Heart and lung exams were clear, and there were no rashes present on the patient's extremities. Labs at the time of transfer to the PICU included a white blood cell count of 10,000 with 62% neutrophils and 26% lymphocytes, hemoglobin 7.2 with a hematocrit of 21, platelets of 276. His basic metabolic panel was notable for a sodium of 142, hyperkalemia to 8.4, a chloride of 102, bicarb of 19, a BUN of 173, and a creatinine of 5.8. Serum phosphorus was 10.5. Total calcium was 6.4 with an ionized component of 3.4. His mag, 2.0, albumin, 2.6, AST, and ALT were normal. A urinalysis showed a spec grab of 1015, pH of 7.5, urine protein of 300, and the rest negative or normal. Chest radiograph revealed small bilateral pleural effusions, and after initial stabilization of his hyperkalemia, the patient was admitted to the PICU. His intact PTH was 295, with the normal range being 8.5 to 22, and his respiratory virus panel, including COVID, was negative. C3 and C4 were also normal. A nephrotic syndrome FSGS genetic panel was sent, and a renal ultrasound showed bilateral echogenic kidneys and ascites small volume. Kate, what are some of the salient features of the case we just presented? So this patient has a subacute illness characterized by edema, anemia, and proteinuria. 
His labs show that he has a severe acute kidney injury with significantly elevated BUN and creatinine. He has hyperkalemia, hyperphosphatemia, and hypocalcemia, as well as metabolic acidosis. Well, what an awesome case. And I am so excited to have Dr. Jernigan join us. Dr. Jernigan, welcome to Pick You Doc on Call. Well, thanks, Kate, Rahul, and Pradeep for inviting me to your podcast. This is such a great way to provide education, and it's really my pleasure to be here today to speak about one of my favorite topics, which is pediatric dialysis. I have no financial disclosures or conflicts of interest, and I'm ready to get started. All right. Well, Dr. Jernigan, as you get a call from the emergency department similar to this patient case, and subsequently you are now going to coordinate care with the pediatric critical care physicians and care team, As a nephrologist, what really goes on in your mind? So the first thing when I get a call from the outside hospital is to make sure the patient is safe and stable for transfer to our tertiary care center. So this includes concerns about airway, breathing, and the level of alertness in the patient. And from a renal standpoint, I'm worried, particularly in this patient and others, about elevated blood pressure, electrolyte abnormalities, and in this case, primarily the hyperkalemia and the fluid overload. That's especially true given that this patient has a low oxygenation on his pulse ox. So it's important that children are transported to an appropriate center early, but they still need to be done safely. This allows us to begin the diagnostic workup and begin intervention as necessary. This is particularly true in the case of renal replacement therapy, which most community hospitals are reticent or unable to offer to our pediatric patients. Our episode today will be divided into a few broad categories. Indications slash principles of kidney replacement, technical aspects of renal replacement therapy, anticoagulation, and a comparison of various types of renal replacement therapies and their complications. Dr. Jernigan, we love to hear about those ABCs as critical care docs. And now, if you wouldn't mind, let's start with those indications and principles of kidney replacement. In your mind, what are the general indications for renal replacement in our pediatric patients? The indications for renal replacement therapy are actually quite similar in acute and chronic dialysis. However, they differ in their urgency. So as we know, the kidneys are important for waste product elimination. And a primary measure of this is the blood urea nitrogen, BUN. Also, acid base and electrolyte balance, and of course, maintaining fluid balance. When these functions fail acutely so as to be dangerous to a patient or when they're chronically inadequate despite medical management, then renal replacement is indicated. Acute indications tend to be significant uremia, which can have consequences on multiple body systems, including the central nervous system, the heart, on coagulation, also symptomatic fluid overload, which can affect breathing or cardiac function, and or hyperkalemia and intractable acidosis, which is not responsive to medical intervention. So medical management includes for fluid overload, the use of diuretics, but sometimes these are ineffective, and the use of bicarb in order to correct acidosis and shift potassium intracellularly. Additional therapy for hyperkalemia includes membrane stabilization with calcium infusions, as well as increasing the uptake of potassium by cells with glucose, insulin, and beta agonist. We can also try to eliminate potassium Uh, in the gut with ion exchange resin, the most common of which is KXLate. Not related to the kidney directly, dialysis may also be needed for toxic overdoses. This includes the aspirin, acetaminophen, lithium, and metformin, to name a few. Or it can be used in inborn errors of metabolism resulting in hyperaminemia. 
So this has led to the mnemonic AEIOU, which stands for acidosis, electrolytes, ingestions, overload, and uremia. So uremia with a BUN of greater than 100 and associated symptoms or greater than 150, even without current symptoms, is really concerning and may be an indication for acute dialysis. So a less acute indication for dialysis, but no less important, is when treatment of a condition or caloric nutrition are impeded by fluid issues. And in these situations, dialysis allows for these to be maximized without regard to secondary consequences of fluid imbalance. Of note, while creatinine gives us a stable measurement of glomerular filtration rate, its value is not in and of itself an indicator for renal replacement therapy. And in fact, many of our patients on chronic dialysis walk around with rather elevated creatinines. That's great to know, Dr. Jernigan, uh, summarizing what you were uh, just talking about, the mnemonic AEIOU, acidosis, which is the A, it's usually going to be a metabolic acidosis with a pH less than 7.1, though it depends on uh, your patient's clinical state. E being electrolytes, refractory hyperkalemia with the serum potassium greater than 6.5 or any rapidly rising potassium levels. Intoxications. Uh, you mentioned a few, but also to conceptualize it a bit further, thinking about the mnemonic slime, which includes salicylates, lithium, isopropyl alcohol, methanol, and ethylene glycol. Fluid overload, which you also mentioned, and uremia, especially when we have signs or symptoms of uremia, which includes pericarditis, neuropathy, uremic bleeding, which is a qualitative platelet dysfunction, or any unexplained decline in mental status. Now, going into dialysis itself, Dr. Jernigan, what physical principles are used in dialysis and what are the properties of the substances we can actually dialyze? All right. So let's start with the principles of dialysis. Important here is understanding the laws that govern the movement of molecules between solutions and across a semi-permeable membrane. First is diffusion, which is the movement of molecules from a solution of higher concentration to lower concentration. So this is much like tea, where tea bag is semi-permeable membrane with bidirectional flow. So when you think about tea, the tea in the bag diffuses out into the water based on the concentration gradient. And diffusion, equilibrium will eventually occur, and all things equal, diffusion will slow and then stop. And of course, that's when you quit seeping your tea. Uh, smaller molecules will diffuse faster than larger molecules. So this modality does better with smaller molecules. Next principle is convection. So convection is the movement of molecules across the membrane due to a pressure gradient, sometimes known as solute drag. So this can be compared to making coffee, where the water which passes through the coffee grounds is pulling or dragging the coffee, the flavor of the coffee, and thank goodness the caffeine as well, with it. So this can be a pressure gradient, which might be seen in uh, CVVH. And of course, we're going to talk about these things a bit more later. Osmotic gradient, which would be seen in peritoneal dialysis. So convective therapies are better for larger molecular weight substances, but they also remove small molecules as well. Hemofiltration, just for being complete, is the movement of fluid across the membrane due to the gradient. So I think we're going to talk more specifically again about the different types of dialysis later. However, just in brief, to go ahead and set the stage, hemodialysis uses primarily diffusion with the blood flow rate and dialyzer being factors that increase or decrease clearance. PD uses both diffusion and convection, but is not the most common modality that we see in the ICU. And CVVH, 
which is, in its classic form, uses primarily convection. But there's different modes that we'll also talk about a bit later. To your second point, what is the best quality to have removal of these molecules? And and in general, best clearance occurs with smaller molecules, less than 10,000 Daltons. Uh, You would want to have a high water solubility and a smaller volume of distribution so that the dialysis modality can get to it. Finally, you want low protein binding because proteins are large. And therefore, if the molecular substance is is high in protein binding, it's not going to be removed well. So for instance, albumin is 66,000 Dalton. So things that are highly protein browned are just not going to be removed as easily. Wonderful, Dr. Jernigan. Thanks so much for setting the stage. Now, to summarize, dialysis systems operate either via diffusion, i.e. movement of molecules, across a semi-permeable membrane using a concentration gradient, think of the T, or via convection, where solutes move across semi-permeable membranes using a pressure gradient, think about, like my favorite, coffee. In some modalities, ultrafiltration occurs due to an osmotic pressure gradient. Let's transition to the next portion of our podcast, which will cover vascular access and anticoagulation. Dr. Jernigan, before we go into each modality of dialysis, should we discuss the access required for renal replacement therapy, especially in the PICU? Yes. Before we can get started, we do need to discuss access to the vasculature, which would be what you would need in hemodialysis or CVVH, and also to the peritoneal cavity, which would be peritoneal dialysis. So as we know, vascular access can be placed by you, our ICU colleagues, as well as by interventional radiologists and surgeons. In general, we need a very large gauge vascular catheter. The smallest catheter uh, in current state is usually around 8 gauge or up to 14 gauge, though there are newer machines coming out to do dialysis, which we're not going to discuss in detail today, that do allow for much smaller gauge catheters. So that's pretty exciting in my world. These vascular access catheters are best placed in the internal jugular. The subclavian vein, which is sort of the location of old, has really been changed or fallen out of favor due to complications during placement of the catheter, as well as to vessel stenosis. The vessel stenosis is particularly problematic in the subclavian for patients that might in the future need arteriovenous fistulas because this decreases their success later on. If there is urgency for placement of a catheter, and especially in larger individuals, the femoral access may be needed. Though this does carry with it a higher risk of infection. And again, we worry about placement in the femoral vessels for future vascular access for renal transplantation, because this is where we would put a a renal transplant. The old terminology for vascular access includes a vascath, which would suggest a temporary catheter, or perm cath, which suggests a longer-term catheter, We as a system have now begun to move to terminology that better describes the type of catheter placed and its indication. So this includes a single versus a double lumen, low flow versus high flow, and tunneled and cuffed, which would be more permanent versus a non-tunneled catheter. So for our dialysis patients, we require a double lumen catheter. It is a high flow catheter. And for long-term, the catheter is tunneled and cuffed to allow for less infection and movement risk. But often in our ICU setting, uh, they are are non-tunneled and cuffed. Peritoneal catheters, uh, switching gears, are placed by our surgeons. 
Uh, these are silicone and polyurethane, and in best practice are double cuffed. The first cuffed is placed under the skin, and the second uh, cuff, after it is tunneled through, is placed in the rectus muscle. Following the second cuff, the catheter enters the peritoneal catheter, where many have a coiled tip filled with many different holes to allow for exchange. And it's placed in the pericolic gutter or the true pelvis. While these can be used urgently, the preference is to allow them to sit and heal for about two weeks to avoid leakage and therefore increase risk of infection. The exception is in uh, smaller infants where this is the best option for dialysis. And in many situations, it needs to be started uh, more urgently. Awesome. That's a really good overview. Do you mind switching gears a little bit, Dr. Jernigan, and telling us about anticoagulation for renal replacement therapy? Sure. So anytime blood is circulated outside the body, there's, it's at risk for clotting, and, and this can lead to blood loss. For this reason, anticoagulation in these modalities is required. So the original anticoagulant for blood dialysis is heparin, and, and this is still the mainstay in hemodialysis. This is given as bolus and then a continuous infusion until at some point before discontinuation of dialysis, as this is systemic anticoagulation. So in patients that have catheters, it can be turned off very close to the end of dialysis and patients who actually dialyze through a fistula, it needs to be turned off sooner uh, so that they will not have significant bleeding as the needles are removed. The monitoring is through ACTs. However, our dosing of heparin has become relatively standard now. And while we may use ACTs acutely at the very initiation of dialysis, we're not really using them as often. And certainly, we rarely use them in the chronic unit. Uh, the starting bolus is roughly 20 to 50 units per kilo, and then an infusion of 10 to 30 units per kilo per hour over the remaining time on dialysis. The side effects that we see from heparin are that you can have heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. And then again, uh, it's important to note that this is systemic anticoagulation. So there is a bleeding risk to the patients. This can be particularly uh, concerning if we have patients that need to go on dialysis after a surgical procedure. So newer to our armatarium is citrate. And citrate is a regional anticoagulation, meaning it anticoagulates the circuit, but not the patient. So citrate binds to calcium in the circuit and prevents activation of both the coagulation cascades and, and platelet aggregation. So the majority, so the citrate and the calcium bind, this creates a calcium citrate complex, and this moves across the membrane by diffusion during the dialysis and lost, is lost in the ultrafiltrate. So a systemic calcium infusion is then needed post-filter to replace the calcium, which is lost with the citrate. Any calcium citrate complex that is not filtered and returns to the patient has a very short half-life and is, in fact, metabolized by primarily the liver to bicarb, but also the kidney and the skeletal muscle. So when we're using citrate anticoagulation, this is titrated to blood flow to maintain a low ionized calcium in the circuit so that we know that it is anticoagulated. And then the calcium infusion is used to make sure that we keep a normal calcium level in the patient. There are several advantages to citrate. First and foremost, as I've mentioned several times, is the regional anticoagulation. So less systemic bleeding, especially those who might be at high risk. It can be used in patients who have developed heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, and in some patients, the additional bicarb is helpful. The disadvantages is that in some patients, the additional bicarb is not helpful, and there can be other metabolic complications related to acid base and calcium loss. In addition, with citrate anticoagulation, 
There are a lot more protocols and varying infusion rates that need to be followed. Uh, There are frequent calcium measurements that need to be monitored. And then there's a very small population of patients where citrate is probably contraindicated, at least relatively so. And this includes patients with hepatic failure, as well as kids with inborn errors of metabolism related to mitochondrial disorders, because that is where some of the short half-life of citrate is accomplished. Finally, I want to mention Flolan. This is apoprostanol, which is a naturally occurring prostaglandin with a potent vasodilatory activity and inhibitory activity of platelet aggregation and thus thrombus generation. This is its mechanism to prevent clotting. For this reason, it is avoided in patients with thrombocytopenia and should also be used in caution with patients who have hypotension because of its vasodilation properties. It does have a very short half-life and like other anticoagulants for CVVH is given by a continuous infusion of somewhere in the range of two to eight nanograms per kilo per minute. The monitoring for Flovan is relatively simple in that it really is based on circuit longevity. It's something that we are beginning to use more and more in our unit without much in the way of complications. That's a great summary. And just to bring home key points, citrate binds calcium. So we need to be careful in patients with liver failure. And with Flolan, we need to watch for patients who have thrombocytopenia as well as hypotension. Switching gears to the membranes used in renal replacement therapy. Dr. Jernigan, what are the types of dialyzers used during renal replacement therapy? Hemodialysis dialyzers, which we like to call the kidney in our unit, are primarily made of synthetic material, polysulfane, polymix, depending on the company that makes them, the the material may vary slightly. However, we like the synthetic membranes because they have less complement activation and thus less of a systemic allergic reaction, which we used to see with the old, more natural dialyzers. So the dialyzers are made of multiple hollow semi-permeable membrane fibers through which blood flows. And then the dialysate moves in a countercurrent fashion outside of these fibers. The effectiveness of the dialyzer is based on the thinness of that material, as well as the number and the size of the pores within those fibers. The dialyzer gives a very large surface area. And in hemodialysis, this should basically approximate the body surface area of the patient. For Prismaflex or CVVH, we use two synthetic catheters, the HF20 and the HF1000, which these are best determined by the patient size and clearance capability. HF20 is uh, relatively new in the world of CRT, and it is able to be used more safely on smaller children weighing down to 8 to 20 kilos. The reason this is an issue is the volume of the dialyzer and the tubing is important both for hemodialysis and CVVH. As you probably know, there is a limit to the volume of blood that can be removed from the body in the extracorporeal circuit. So it needs to remain less than 10% of the estimated blood volume. And if more is needed, then we would need a blood prime. So keeping in mind that the extracorporeal volume is made up of not only the dialyzer, but also the extracorporeal tubing. So the larger the dialyzer, you're going to get better clearance, but it's also going to take more blood outside the body. And the same is for the tubing. In CRRT, I did mention the new filter, the HF20, which is really exciting because before everything was adult size. And so for our small kids, this was a real problem. 
Just as an aside, vascular access uh, for dialysis in the PICU is pretty easily attained by intensivists, but we should be cautious for infants less than a year of age due to fluid overload, as well as platelet dysfunction from uremia or DIC or whatever other issues they may have going on. We may be better served to call our surgery colleagues and have them do the line in a controlled setting. Um, I think it's also really important to, for ICU docs to be well-versed in the systemic versus the regional anticoagulation for RRT. And I think it's a really unique and honestly elegant thing that we can do this regional anticoagulation. To switch gears a little bit, Dr. Jernigan, can you tell us which modalities of renal replacement therapy we typically use in kids? In children, we primarily use peritoneal dialysis hemodialysis, and then continuous venovenous hemofiltration, which is what we call CVVH, CVVHD, or CVVHDF, which stands for CVVH with hemodialysis or CVVH with hemodiofiltration. So just different modes of the same process. Wonderful. Thanks for highlighting these different processes. And in our episode now, we'll kind of break down each of these modalities. Dr. Jernigan, let's start with peritoneal dialysis. While peritoneal dialysis may not be the most common modality used in the PICU, I am going to call it out as my favorite. So after placing the catheter, peritoneal dialysis takes advantage of the very large surface area of the peritoneal lining. So keeping in mind that it lines not only the peritoneal cavity, but also the surface of all of our bowels and uh, intraperitoneal organs. It is a naturally semi-permeable bidirectional membrane, which is what you need to do dialysis and, and allows us to do dialysis by both diffusion and convection. PD is performed by instilling fluid, which we call dianeal, into the peritoneal cavity, which is then allowed to dwell for a prescribed amount of time. And this allows solute movement via the diffusion, and then it's drained. This is repeated for a prescribed number of cycles or time. So the dianeal solution contains calcium, magnesium, sodium chloride, and then sodium lactate as a buffer. The variable in the dianeal is the dextrose, which creates the osmolarity to allow for fluid removal and secondary solute drag by convection. So that is how uh, PD uses both. The dextrose concentration in dianeal, there's primarily three concentrations, 1.5, 2.5, and 4.25%, with the higher dextrose pulling more fluid. As the peritoneal membrane is bidirectional, equilibrium will eventually occur. So the fine art in peritoneal dialysis is to find the right dwell time to remove waste and fluid and then drain before that equilibrium occurs. Volumes used in pediatric patients range from roughly 10 to 40 milliliters per kilogram of body weight, and dialysis improves or clearance improves with increased volume and thus more membrane exposure to the dianeal, as well as by increasing the time on dialysis or the number of cycles on dialysis. So in general, peritoneal dialysis is well-tolerated and is certainly the best dialysis for young babies, with catheters being able to be placed in children weighing as little as 1.8 to 2 kilograms without needing the blood exposure that would be warranted with hemodialysis. While inpatient, PD can be done with a manual exchange uh, set for very small volumes. And once appropriate volumes are obtained, which is somewhere around 100 milliliters, then we can transition these kids to an automated cycler. In addition to its advantages in these very small patients, the other advantages of PD include need for less uh, specialized equipment, 
and highly trained extracorporeal personnel. It does not require vascular access or anticoagulation. The electrolyte shifts are slow and gentle. And in the outpatient world, PD is done at home and daily, so it has advantages to quality of life and to nutrition. Uh, Concerns include that waste and fluid removal are variable and may not be as acute or as aggressive enough for some ill children, so may not be best for fluid overload or hyperkalemia. And also, there's PD is not a great acute therapy due to concerns for leakage from a fresh catheter. So after the catheter is healed, it doesn't do much of that, and that's part of what the cuffs are for, but it's a problem with acute use. Also, instilling fluid into the abdominal cavity may impinge upon respiratory excursion. So this could be a problem for some patients. And also, this modality does rely on adequate blood pressure to perfuse the peritoneum. So if hypotension is present, it may be less effective. Other contraindications for using this modality would be recent or impending abdominal surgery that that went into the peritoneal cavity gastroschisis or emphalocele contraindications. However, VP shunts, ostomies, and eagle barrett, perhaps relative, but are not absolute contraindications to this therapy. Some of the complications that we see with peritoneal dialysis include poor flow from the catheter due to adhesions, fibrin sheaths, constipation is a big one, or wrapping of the catheter in omentum or in and amongst the, the intestines. Other complications include hernias, hydrothorax, or pneumoperitoneum. From an infectious standpoint, we can see exit site infections, we can see infections along the tunnel, but most concerning are those that are the when the fluid itself becomes infected, which is peritonitis. Um, This is treated with a combination of intraperitoneal and or IV antibiotics. This can be a problem long-term because infections can scar that membrane and that can be a problem. Also, it's important to note that fungal prophylaxis is needed for when patients are on antibiotics for any indication, whether it's for peritonitis, tunnel infections, or maybe it's for their pneumonia, because fungal peritonitis is a major cause of catheter loss. All right. Well, as sad as you'll be to move away from PD, can you tell us a little bit about hemodialysis? Sure. So as we mentioned, hemodialysis uses primarily the principle of diffusion to remove waste with countercurrent blood and dialysis through those tiny tubules. The rate-limiting factor is blood flow. This is relative to patient and catheter size. The advantage of hemodialysis, however, is fast removal of waste and water. It's an excellent method to quickly treat hyperkalemia and fluid overload. And it's also been shown to be the most efficient method to remove dialyzable drugs due to overdose or ammonia in those patients with inborn errors of metabolism or liver failure. Though I have to mention uh, CVVH techniques are, are gaining ground here. These rapid fluid and electrolyte shifts, however, can make HD problematic modality for patients as well. This is especially true for patients who have hemodynamic instability or poor cardiac function. If it's used in patients with severe uremia, an example of which is the patient you presented at the beginning of this podcast, caution must be taken to lower that blood urea slowly as to not cause something called disequilibrium system syndrome. So this can come from osmotic shift in the central nervous system and secondary cerebral edema. And while it may be mild, it can also be uh, fatal. So it's something we think about quite seriously when we see patients walk in with very, very high blood urea and nitrogen. Hemodialysis does require specialized equipment and very highly trained personnel, which may cause some delays in getting this modality started. 
Hemodialysis is generally done only three times a week and occasionally every other day in the acute setting. So this does require us to limit fluid between sessions. Also in small babies, less than about seven and a half kilograms, uh, blood primes need to be used due to that extracorporeal circuit volume. And so this causes significant blood and therefore antigen exposure. So in my world, since many of my patients may ultimately need a kidney transplant, this is a big deal. We don't want them to have much blood exposure. As hemodialysis does remove unwanted drugs in in overdose or toxic exposure, it also removes those of routine use. And so adjustments do need to be made to antibiotics and and other medications that we use when patients are receiving uh, hemodialysis. Blood infections, I would say, are probably the primary infectious complication. So let's talk a little bit more about disequilibrium syndrome. So rapid lowering of the urea levels that were markedly elevated prior to dialysis, especially in patients with prolonged elevations, may result in neurologic symptoms such as headaches, seizures, and altered mental status. This syndrome is due to the solutes in the brain, which leads to cerebral cell swelling due to osmotic fluid shifts. Mannitol is the preferred therapy of choice, and it can also be mitigated by shortening the dialysis session, decreasing blood flow, and allowing a slower decrease in BUN, as Dr. Jernigan mentioned. All right, Dr. Jernigan, as we continue with the modalities, let's talk about a very commonly used modality in the PICU, and that is CVVH, or continuous venovenous hemofiltration. We would love to hear your clinical pearls on this modality. So it's actually a pretty good segue talking about disequilibrium syndrome before we talk about this modality, because it is slower and gentler and allows you to avoid that complication. So CVVH is the most common dialysis modality used in the pediatric intensive care unit. It's a modality that's often incorporated into the staffing of an ICU, and therefore it can be initiated quickly. Again, as a continuous therapy, it's slower and gentler than hemodialysis and its fluid and electrolyte removal, and thus better for the less hemodynamically stable patient. So for context, blood flows, CVVH are somewhere in the range of 30 to 100 mils per minute as compared to hemodialysis, where the smallest baby may be at 80, but adults go up to 200, 250, and 300. So a significant difference in the hemodynamic effect. So again, CVVH allows for a slower and more controlled lowering of urea when needed and therefore can avoid that disequilibrium. And also as it's continuous, it allows for more consistent fluid administration. And this is particularly true of nutrition, blood products, and medications. Traditional CVVH relies on convection for solute removal with pre-filter substitution fluid providing that hydrostatic pressure gradient, which then allows for that convection, that solute drag. Uh, CVVH has the ability to remove larger molecules, and this may include inflammatory cytokines. And this has become a little bit more of a hot topic in, in ICU settings. The substitution fluid, which we call duosol, is near physiologic with sodium, potassium, magnesium, chloride, and bicarbonate. The bicarbonate comes in two concentrations, 25 and 32. The duosol does not, however, contain calcium or glucose, but these are in the fluids required for that citrate anticoagulation that we talked about. So there's glucose in the, the citrate, then of course, we're using a calcium drip in the post-filter. So it is important to be aware of this if one reverts back to heparin for anticoagulation to make sure that that glucose and calcium is being monitored and addressed in other areas of management. 
So calculations in CDVH are made and they're entered into the CDVH equipment. And this allows for net accrual, net neutral or net removal of fluid as it relates to effluent and the substitution fluid. If additional clearance is needed from this modality, we can use a mode of CVVHDF, which is continuous venous hemodiafiltration, which allows for substitution fluid, but as well countercurrent duosol, which acts as a dialysate. So this adds diffusive clearance to the convective clearance. And I will say that while comparative studies are still lacking, this modality is beginning to rival hemodialysis for drug and ammonia removal when toxic. Switching to complications of renal replacement therapy, Dr. Jernigan, what are some of the complications of renal replacement therapy that we may encounter in the PICU? So let's start with the catheter complications. As I mentioned, uh, certainly can include infection, but also sort of uh, kinking or malposition of the catheter. So this can be especially true with those that need to be placed acutely and thus non-tunneled the catheters that need to come from the internal jugular or from the femoral are often very susceptible to patient movement, and that may not allow for good flow. With respect to circuit complications, the tubing is rather large volume. And so I believe, as I mentioned, in kids who are less than 15 kilos for CVVH, they often need a blood prime. So while we're thankful for the newer HF20 filter, this is still a complication of volume. We can also see blood leakage, blood clotting in CVVH due to the slower blood flow. Uh, there are concerns for air embolism, but thankfully, the CVVH equipment does have multiple bells and whistles to monitor for air in the line, clots in the line, and these alarm if these occur so that we're able to stop the modality. Also, we still continue to be concerned about hemodynamic instability and electrolyte shifts, but these are much less common with CVVH than with hemodialysis. Dr. Jernigan, when should we initiate renal replacement therapy in the PICU? And would you start renal replacement therapy for our case presentation, the patient who we went over today? So the patient who you presented today clearly has significant hyperkalemia with a potassium greater than eight, a severe elevation of BUN, oliguria, and fluid overload. So fluid restriction could potentially worsen this patient's uremia and fluid administration to challenge perhaps his urine output and uremia runs the risk of worsening his pulmonary status, of which he already has a lower um, oxygen uh, saturation. So I would initiate CVVH for this patient to acutely lower the potassium, slowly lower the BUN, and as well as remove and control his fluid status. The timing of renal replacement therapy certainly depends on the urgency of the electrolyte imbalance and fluid status, as well as symptomatology, whether this is refractory acidosis, hyperkalemia, and pulmonary edema. I'm of the opinion of starting earlier to not allow for fluid overload if patients have diminishing urine output in a setting where it's unlikely to improve quickly. We certainly know that studies in certain pediatric populations have shown there are worsened outcomes when fluid overload is present. So earlier starts often also allow for adequate nutrition, which is important for recovery of any illness. And while renal replacement initiation timing may still be educated assessment, I hate to say an educated guess in some patients, we do now have the ability to follow INGAL, which is a marker of renal damage and may tell us sort of the likelihood of worsening uh, renal function. 
So far, we have talked about some important complications, infection, mechanical issues, hemorrhage, and even hemodynamic instability. A good clinical pearl is to make sure you are re-evaluating your patient on the onset of CRRT, coordinating care with your pediatric nephrologist, and placing in your differential complications of CRRT, especially if the patient decompensates. So Dr. Jernigan, with even less data on CVVH liberation, especially in the pediatric population, how can we, in your words, make an educated assessment about when to stop CVVH in the PICU? So in general, we discontinue renal replacement therapy when renal recovery is such that the patient can maintain their fluid and electrolyte milieu with medical intervention, perhaps, but without dialysis. So many times we may have an idea of the likelihood of recovery based on the etiology that got them to the point of needing dialysis, whether that's a renal injury or whether studies would suggest this patient is now chronic renal failure. The cessation of renal replacement therapy almost certainly requires the return of some urine output. And so if we're running patients at net zero or net negative balance, and honestly, net zero is still negative because we we aren't able to calculate insensibles well, this is not likely to occur. So we will often do a trial of net positive balance or actually stopping dialysis for a period of time, particularly if it's time for a circuit change or there is clotting of the circuit. So some of the medical management that can replace CRT includes the use of diuretics if they're effective, fluid restrictions and dietary modifications, and medications such as bicarb, calcium, potassium binders. So those, if we're able to do that without dialysis, that might be an indication for stopping. I do think it's important to realize that we do run the risk of further adding renal injury if we overly diurese a patient on CVVH. I feel this is more an issue of overly aggressive fluid removal as opposed to early initiation of renal replacement therapy. I sort of feel that if we are very good at monitoring our patients and we start CVVH at uh, perhaps earlier but appropriate time, we don't allow them to get fluid overloaded and therefore we're not playing aggressive catch-up on the backside. Uh, That said, we are often balancing uh, the need to improve cardiac and respiratory status with not overly dialyzing a patient because obviously fluid overload is problematic for the heart and lungs. So as we've learned today that initiation of RRT in critically ill pediatric patients in the PICU can result in complications that need to be recognized and managed early. Renal replacement in the ICU requires a multidisciplinary team approach that's facilitated by ICU staff, ICU intensivists, and pediatric nephrologists. It's a team sport. Dr. Jernigan, we greatly appreciate your expertise on renal replacement therapies in the PICU today on our podcast. This concludes our episode today on providing kidney support in the PICU. We hope you found value in this podcast. We welcome you to share your feedback and place a review on our podcast at pqdoconcall.org. PICU.ONCALL is co-hosted by me, Pradeep Kamath, and my co-hosts, Dr. Kate Phelps and Dr. Rahul Dimania. Thank you and stay tuned for our next episode. 